morning, everyone. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, where today we're going to be giving our attention to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. It's our custom on the first Sunday of the month to observe the Lord's Supper. And if we do not have some awareness some understanding of what happens in the events recorded here in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. We will not see, we will not sense, we will not feel the full impact of what we will be participating in later in this gathering. The book of Exodus, It's so central to the Old Testament, and the book of Exodus is absolutely essential in preparing us for the gospel in the New Testament. Therefore, the importance of the Passover, as it is recorded here, the first Passover, as we are about to hear it described in Exodus 12, 1 to 13, it cannot be overstated. So, as an extended meditation to prepare us for the Lord's Supper today. I want to invite you, if you're able to stand, this is holy ground because this is God's holy word. Please follow along. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall Kill their lambs at twilight. They shall take some of the blood, put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. What we're about to look into, meditate on, think about. It's, a, it's a, an awesome thing. It's an awesome reality. Lord God, that you put on display not only the glory of your justice and your wrath against sin, but you also put on display your mercy, your steadfast love, the love which we have just sung about. There's none like you, O oh God, and there is none like our Christ, this Lamb who was slain for us. Pray, pray, O oh God, that you might open the eyes of our hearts and through the working of your Holy Spirit we might behold we might behold the glories of your steadfast love and kindness and faithfulness that you have extended to all generations of those who would turn and trust you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I had a neighbor. I had a neighbor with whom I'd have lively conversations about God and Jesus and sin. And he had this particular curiosity regarding why God to him seemed so consistently angry. Why is God so ticked off about sin, he would ask me. Which led to another question. How good do I have to be before God will accept me? Perhaps you've wondered the same thing. How, how good are you? Are you good enough? for God to accept you. One of our heroes, Charles Spurgeon, once preached a sermon on the text of Isaiah 57, 16 to 18, and his first point was, divine contention is well-deserved. Divine contention, or in other words, divine anger. Divine anger is well-deserved. The Lord, said Spurgeon, has a controversy with sinners. God comes to humankind and he says, here, let me share with you my joy. Here, I, I, I offer to you infinite joy, infinite pleasure in knowing me. I offer you wisdom divine wisdom, I promise to care for you, I promise to provide for you, I promise to guide you and love you, and all, all have said, 
nah, I'd rather go my own way. I'd rather decide for myself what's best. I'd rather determine for myself what's right and what is wrong. No thank you. I'll go with my own prerogatives. I'll be my own God. And on account of this, divine contention, anger, is well deserved. Last week we gave our attention to nine separate plagues God poured out on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They're horrifying plagues as we really think about them. Soul-crushing plagues, catastrophic destruction of natural resources, catastrophic destruction of a national economy. Many people died in these plagues. And therefore, hearts were broken. Sorrows and griefs and torments were multiplied because God has a controversy with sinners. And this divine contention is well-deserved. But God, who is holy and just, is also merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in his unfathomable kindness, he invents and he initiates a means for ending this contention. And so God puts forward here in this Tenth and final plague, a method for putting away his anger. And we are about to learn what that method is. The final plague is this. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Imagine, I'm not a firstborn, but my wife is a firstborn. And we have a firstborn. Every firstborn. In other words, the first Passover reveals that God's contention is not only with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. There's also a controversy between God and his people. The very people that he loves. And so this this first Passover reveals God's plan and his proposal for ending his contention, his anger, with everyone. Up until this moment, it seems that the people of Israel are (laughs) clueless about God's contention with them. Until this moment, God has graciously protected them. God has graciously preserved them. God has graciously made a distinction between them and the Egyptians. None of the previous plagues appear, at least, to have touched them or affected them. And and it was really quite apart from any requirement uh, uh, or act of obedience by them. Oh, but this final plague. It's different. This final plague not only involves the Lord's contention with Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their sin. It involved God's contention against Israel. Because 
of their sin. And in this tenth and final plague, it's not, it's not Pharaoh whom the Israelites need to be delivered from. Rather, instead, they need to be delivered from the judgment of God. Plagues 1 through 9 presented no danger to the Israelites. God poured out his righteous judgment exclusively on the Egyptians. But in the 10th plague, this discrimination between Egyptians and Israelites, it is now conditional. It requires an act of obedience that rises from faith on the part of the Israelites, whereas simply being an Israelite may have protected them from the previous nine plagues, not this plague. This plague, this judgment, this blow applies to all. And no family living in the land of Egypt is exempt. And though the, the Israelites are, yes, they, they are victims of the sins of an evil and unjust political system. They are victims of a wicked governing authority. This plague communicates that they are sinners just like everyone else. And therefore, they are in no less need of redemption. The Israelites need deliverance from God's judgment because of their sin. The angel of death would not be discriminating as he passed through the land. Exodus chapter 12 verse 12 says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So, you see, it's, it's, it's not just Pharaoh's firstborn who's vulnerable to this plague. Moses' firstborn is vulnerable. Aaron's firstborn is vulnerable. Everybody's firstborn is vulnerable. So the tenth plague is going to accomplish, yes, it's going to accomplish the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. Oh, but it is also this Passover that addresses their relationship with God and their need for redemption because of their sin. Hard not to wonder if the Israelites were just a little surprised about this. Caught off guard. Like, we're in the same crosshairs of God's judgment as the Egyptians? Prior to this plague, God had made this distinction between them and the Egyptians. We're safe. We're exempt. As, as, a, as a young Christian, I just remember being so self-righteous. As an old Christian, I still find myself tempted at times to be so self-righteous. <laughs> oh, I'm not perfect. But I'll tell you, I have never done the sinful things those people have done. How good are you? How good is good enough? And so as the Israelites compared themselves with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they, they had to have felt pretty good, right? 
But this plague, with this one, they are about to experience a serious jolt. They deserve the judgment of God just as much as their enemies deserved the judgment of God. According to the notes in the uh, ESV Story of Redemption Bible, it says, in a way, these instructions must have been terrifying to the people of Israel. God tells his people that the angel of death is going to pass through their midst and the only way their firstborn will be saved is if they kill a lamb and put its blood prominently on their doorposts. You see, you see what God's teaching the people? I mean, first of all, he wants them to understand that they themselves are guilty of sin. But second, he's beginning to teach his people about this principle of sacrifice and substitution. That, that's what, what we're going to do in a little bit is intended to teach us and remind us as well. This principle of sacrifice and substitution. Their sin demands death, but that price can be paid by another. And in this case, it's paid by the Lamb. As this story of Redemption Bible notes continue, this would have been a visceral, bloody, and unforgettable lesson. And any of you who have ever part, been part of a butchering of an animal, you know that that is a visceral, bloody, and rather unforgettable thing. As each family butchers that animal and puts its blood on their doorposts, they know unmistakably that it's this little lamb who has died in the place of, instead of, their own firstborn offspring. And make no mistake, this is a lesson that God wants his people. He wants us to never forget. That's why we keep doing it again and again and again. We keep reminding ourselves the instructions in this text regarding the first Passover would have been shocking to the Israelites because they assumed that the Lord's anger and contention was with that bad man, Pharaoh, and with those bad people, the Egyptians, who are so guilty of oppression and all the hardship and the enslavement that they had experienced for 400 years. And through nine plagues, the Israelites, they had been miraculously spared, leaving this impression that they're innocent, they're merely victims of the sins of somebody else. But the tenth plague reveals otherwise. This plague confronts the Israelites with their own guilt and for their own sin because... All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, all are deserving of judgment for sin 
and for the proper commensurate penalty for sin. And that is death. And it's always been the wages owed for sin. So the tenth plague is not just the Egyptians' problem. The Israelites face the same problem, and each of us has the same problem. And the shocker in this narrative isn't the judgment that's promised to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The shocker for those original readers standing on the bank of the Jordan waiting to enter into the promised land, the shocker for us is the way God relates to his chosen people. This plague was intended by God to teach Israel, to teach us about the seriousness of our own sin. No one is good enough. In Ezekiel chapter 20, looking back on this period of time, the prophet writes, On the day that I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt, I said to them, Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But... I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So, I led them out of the land of Egypt. And God's way of acting for the sake of his name meant that he himself, he himself would provide a way for ending his holy contention with them. And the Passover is God's way. So, let's take a few moments, just review here the way that God acted for the sake of his name. How does God display his mercy and his steadfast love towards sinners? And first, the first thing in the text is that he surprisingly creates a community. God addresses his relationship with his people. If it's about contention with his people... He restores this relationship with his people. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. With the first Passover, everything is about to change. And in order to remind them of this turning point in their history, God, in effect, hands them a new calendar. The Passover is going to change how the Israelites tell time. 
This became their new January 1st. Their new year begins with this month, which would have been March or April. Would have been because of this event. Think of it. For centuries, 400 years, time had been irrelevant to them as they endured under this harsh enslavement to their Egyptian masters. Every day was bitter. Every day was bitter and as bitter and as hopeless as the day before had been bitter and hopeless. There was no calendar. There was no, well, what should we plan for in a couple weeks? What should we do next month? There was none of that. But now, this month, we're, we're meant to feel the hope of God himself in just those two little words that he's communicating to Moses and Aaron and the people of God. This month. One commentator writes, what a monumental change happens in a person's life when God is in charge of one's time instead of Pharaoh. Expectation replaces resignation. Hope replaces numbness. Rhapsody replaces routine. Celebration replaces drudgery. This, this redemptive act marks the end of their enslavement and the birth of an entirely new nation. And for them, a brand new way of telling time. Just notice how the Lord identifies them. This is the first time this, this term is used in verse 3. Tell the congregation of Israel. They'd never been described that way before. A congregation. They are a spiritual community. Everything is changing. Everything is changing as a result of the Passover. Just, just think about your own conversion. You know when God breaks in? When God broke through your world, your clock, your days, your rhythms, your relationships, your relational identity. All made new. <laughs> They're a new people. And they will no longer be identified by their enslaved past. Secondly, the, the Passover communicates this profound method of God for putting away his contention with people. And that method involves sacrifice and substitution. In Exodus chapter 12 verses 3 through 6, the Lord gives careful instructions as to how to identify and then kill the Passover lamb. And God institutes for the first time what we, we, it's going to be repeated in future generations. Namely, the butchering of a lamb without blemish. And then placing the blood from that lamb on the doorposts and the lintel of each and every home. The, the, the one who is identified in Exodus 12.23 as the destroyer is about... He's about to move through this most powerful nation on the planet. And this destroyer 
will be no respecter of persons, be they Egyptians or Israelites. And on the homes, on the homes where this sacrifice took place, and the destroyer sees the blood publicly, prominently displayed, pass over it. But where there was no sacrifice, where there was no blood, listen to the way the psalmist describes it. Psalm 78. He let loose on them his burning anger. Wrath. Indignation. And distress. A company of destroying angels. He did not spare them from death but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt. The only thing that can protect the Israelites is an unblemished, butchered lamb. That's the only thing that can protect them, protect the Israelites from this death. It's the blood of an unblemished lamb and blood displayed prominently for everybody to see. It's, it is their public proclamation. It's their public statement. It's their public testimony of their faith that this lamb has died as a substitute for their firstborn son or daughter. It's their only hope. Every household, an unblemished male, a year old, that would have been the most valuable of the flock. That's because the Lord is worthy of the best. And then according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, on the 14th day of the month, specific day, Specific time at twilight, every household would kill their lambs. Every household. It's es estimates are be that there were, were between two to four million people. I'm not sure how many households that would be, but that's a lot of people, a lot of households, an enormous amount of blood. And in verse 7, those who were trusting the wisdom and the goodness of the Lord in obedience to the Lord, they made their public confession, spreading the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and lintel of their houses. And, and I think it's fair for us to assume that as the sound of the wailing began to fill the air that night, If you were a firstborn, you would have known. There's only one reason I'm not dead. There's only one reason the destroyer passed over me. The blood. It's the only reason I still exist. It's the blood. Someone else died in my place. 
A third thing is that the Passover is a meal like no other. Notice the great care for the detail that God gives in the preparation of this Passover meal. This is a meal like no other because the purpose of the lamb was for Passover coverage as well as nourishment. Nourishment and preparation for a journey that lay before them. It's the same with the Lord's Supper. It's a nourishment for our journey of faith lays before us. Exodus 12, 8 to 10 says, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat of it, any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So you're going to eat fast. <laughs> There's not going to be any leftovers. This is not a relaxed meal. All of those here with small children, you, you don't know what it is to have a relaxed meal anyway. So uh, meat would normally have been prepared in an oven or a pan, but not this time. No, not enough time to let the dough Rise, they just needed to be ready to go. And since they're going to be leaving in a hurry, they need to be dressed to run. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You know, you can't sprint with a robe that's hanging loose. You got to Get a belt around it, and got to have your sandals on, and you got to eat with your staff in the one free hand. You got going to be leaving everything behind, everything associated with that place, in a matter matter of hours. You see, loved ones, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of something radical. This world is not our home. We leave it all behind. All the Israelites had known for 400 years was slavery, liberation. It was not in their minds. It was not in their, they could not have imagined it. They could not have expected it because it was never an option until that moment, until that meal. And now it's only a matter of hours away and it's only, again, it's only because of the steadfast love of the Lord and His matchless mercy that this unimaginable is happening. Verses 12 and 13. The Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I, am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So when the angel of death passed through the land, what is it that distinguished one home from another? Wasn't who lived there. All came down to one thing. The destroyer looked for one thing. Is their blood? Is the blood publicly displayed? 
If there was, Passover. If there wasn't, the firstborn experiences the just and holy wrath of God. You see, the Passover was not primarily about the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. The Passover was primarily about their redemption. It was about the price of their salvation through God's merciful provision. And then finally, the Passover points to the better lamb. These butchered Passover lambs, each one was just a foreshadowing of, a, of such a greater reality to come. Redemption and deliverance through the blood of an unblemished lamb. It, it pictures, it foreshadows the salvation that was obtained through the sinless, unstained, perfect life and bloody death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover pointed to someone else who would one day be sacrificed for our sin. That sacrifice would have to be without blemish, sinless, for only the sinless one can bear the sin of another. And, and where are you going to find such a person? Where, you, where do you find someone without sin? It would require nothing less than the merciful intervention of God and, and the merciful plan and purpose and provision of God in sending and sacrificing His Son, truly God, fully man, in order to pay the price for sin and satisfy God's justice and display God's mercy. Jesus would become the sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing substitute. Suffering the punishment that sinners like you and I deserve so that by the grace of God, we might be forgiven by God, reconciled to God, and adopted by God. The judgment of God against our sin was placed on His innocent Son so that all who trust in Him would be passed over on that final day of judgment. John Stott writes, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Loved ones, that's the good news of the gospel. The debt for our sin that we owed and could not pay has been paid in full by the life and death of the Son of God. Jesus paid it all and what a price he paid as our Passover lamb bringing an end to the contention of a holy God with sinners like you and me, leading to a new exodus by forgiving and freeing all who would trust, trust in Him. Let's pray. And because of what you have done, Lord Jesus, there are 
myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands who, even in this moment, sing and say with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Be glorified, Lord Jesus. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we're mindful that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our Passover Lamb who was sacrificed in our place that we might not die for our sin. Partaking of these symbols this morning of Jesus' broken body and shed blood, it's a reminder to us once again that God has established a new people, established a new community. He has paid a price for that. This world is not our home. We are bound for a better promised land. And in Christ alone is the nourishment our souls need to make that journey. And so we invite you if you are trusting in Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sin today, that you would receive this bread and this cup. And as um, these men in a moment are going to serve you, please take the piece of bread and, and the cup and then wait and we'll all eat and drink together. I believe there's a gluten-free option in the paper cups. But uh, hold on until we're all ready to be served together. And let's continue in a spirit of prayer.